Well, I would love to have you take your Bibles then as we shift toward our time in God's Word today. And I'm going to ask you to go with me first to the New Testament, as has been our pattern, I suppose. Second uh, Thessalonians, we are studying our way through the book of Isaiah, is why I say it that way. But we're going to begin in the New Testament just very briefly. Um, so my, my title, of course, today, Another Tale of Two Cities. You'll want your sermon notes from the bulletin to help you make sense of all of that. Um, but, but we're heading to the New Testament first for one, one reason in particular, is I want us to see that the, the Bible speaks with a united voice. The Bible is consistent in what it says about God, how to know him, and things about the future. Now, there are things about the future that are not spelled out in every detail. Often, we'd like to know more. I realize that. But at the same time, the Old Testament and the New Testament both speak of events, specifically accountability before God, even judgment, if I may say it that strongly, and we're going to today, and also what it means to know the mercy of God, his kindness to us in Christ. New Testament, Old Testament speak the same language here. So what I, want to want, what I want to do is read 2 Thessalonians 1, and I'll emphasize a couple of verses along the way. Then we'll pray together, and we'll head back to Isaiah and uh, get a, a broader look at some of those things. So God's Word then, 2 Thessalonians. Uh, apparently, the Apostle Paul believed New Testament believers, that'd be us today, needed to know some of this. All right? So here we go. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you were enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting, now watch these, watch these verses, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. So right in the middle of that is this section on judgment. Judgment for those who have refused to bow the knee before God, refused to trust Christ as Savior, Paul believed that people should hear about that to, to live a, a balanced Christian life. So we're going to go there as well from the Old Testament. So I want to pray for us that God would help us to hear very clearly his word, not my words, his word he's telling us. But let's pray together that God would help us with that today. 
Our Father, uh, how, how blessed we are to have the Word of God. Um, thank you for telling us who you are and what you're like. And I thank you for the topics we get to look at today. And I pray that you'd help us. Help us to hear what the Word of God says. And then having heard it, help us to believe it. And then live in it. So Father, this time is yours. We ask you to use our time in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you come back with me then to the book of Isaiah. Again, we're preaching our way through uh, the 66 chapters of this book, and we're right about in the middle, really, chapters 34 and 35. Let me tell you kind of how this is working. These two chapters today are kind of a summary of the elements of judgment and mercy that we have already been looking at. We've seen that back and forth in the earlier part of Isaiah. Judgment on specific cities or nations as God deals with the world and other places where there's mercy for those who, who, who trust in God himself, trust the promises of God and his ultimate savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So chapters 34 and 35 can kind of conclude that. 34, talking about judgment again. Chapter 35, looking at God's mercy. Then there are four chapters that are like a historical interlude, I call them. And they, they describe an event in history when the Assyrian army, as we've learned about that over the past number of months, was attacking other, other countries. They were the big boys in the area. And they finally started attacking the southern part of Israel. And you'll see what happens. So there's a historical account. And then in Isaiah 40, the tone shifts. And you'll probably be ready for that. Because Isaiah 40 instead of themes of judgment, begins with comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says the Lord. And, and we find a whole different tone presented to us, and it'll be good for our souls. Then follow chapter upon chapter of, of truth about what God is like and how big he is and, and how strong he is. So that will happen, Isaiah 40, all the way through, really, chapter 66. But for today, then, this chapter on judgment and a chapter on mercy is what we want to do. Now, if you look at the, the sermon notes that are here, I mentioned to you the chapters preceding this under this, the paragraph called Review. We've just come out of a big section that are all about statements of woe or what sorrow awaits. So there's been judgment upon judgment on nations and cities, people who have turned away from God, sought saviors in other places as we do. And so we've moved out of that and we come to to this section today. Now, under the part called introduction, I just want to explain myself a bit with my title, Another Tale of Two Cities. Um, in chapters 34 and 35, that analogy is not used. You won't find the word cities, but we've seen it before, where the city of man is set in opposition, apposition, really, to the city of God. The city of man being um, a world that's against God, a world that says, I don't think so, a world that says, I'll never bow the knee before you. And whether they believe it or not, the Bible describes a day of accountability before God, the God who is there, even if you don't think so. It's interesting, none of us creates reality. Sometimes people think you, you create your own reality. Well, I'd like you to see you jump off the top of a swing set like we did when we were kids and create your own reality. No, reality is there's gravity. You don't have to believe in it. And bam, I remember this, you'll land real hard about eight feet down. So you don't even have to believe. Just jump and give it a whirl and you'll find out what really is there. And indeed, judgment, the Bible says you don't have to believe it. You don't even, really don't. But there'll be a day you will. Okay, there's a day. There's a day you will believe it, and it won't be a good one. So that's described. 
And oh man, now I put there on your, your notes, Augustine, of course, he used that analogy, city of man that will fall and the city of God. And then I mentioned John Bunyan, who in his classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, hopefully many of you have read that, writing uh, many years later, Augustine, of course, in the 300s AD, Bunyan many years later is one of the Puritans. He wrote about this, uh, the, the city of destruction in the celestial city. He used those terms because he was writing a book about a person on a journey away from one, fleeing the city of destruction. And he's, he's on this journey that pictures a life. And some days are good and some days are bad and there's seasons of temptation. He doesn't always get it right. He wanders off and um, man, bad things happen. Some of his friends die. And finally he makes his way to the celestial city. So John Bunyan uses that two-city analogy. And then I even mentioned Charles Dickens. That comes to mind, the tale of two cities. I, had to re- I read that in high school in a literature class. I didn't like it at all when I was 16. So I decided to read it later, uh, just a few years ago, to see if I liked it any better. I really didn't. Um, I would apologize to all my English teachers uh, if they were still alive, I guess. But man, no, I didn't think so. Tale of two cities. Yeah, London and Paris and I know there were some cool things at the end where there's a redemption story, but in the middle of it, man, I just, anyway, heavy lifting. Tale of two cities, but it's here in the book of Isaiah too, the city of man that will surely fall and the city of God that will last forever. So those are my, those are my two headings. So what I want to do, you've got your Bible open there, hopefully. I always have Bibles in the back, uh, out by the doors as you come in if you need to grab one. I want to read the first eight verses of Isaiah 34, and I just want to say, brace yourself. If, if there's any sense in you that God is kind of a sissy, uh, old guy sitting on a throne who just wants to give everybody a hug, y- yeah, well, Isaiah 34 speaks of judgment, and it does so strongly. So hear the first eight verses then, and we'll talk about them under that heading, the city of man will surely fall. And we read, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations. Can you imagine? Enraged, he says, furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom and May I say Edom here, that was a country, it's used as, as, as a representative, I think, in the text for all of those who rebel against God. Um, it descends for judgment upon Edom, and upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. So this is sacrificial language, Old Testament language being used here. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the day, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a day of recompense 
for the cause of Zion. Zion, another name for Jerusalem, representative of the people of God. The Lord has a day of vengeance. Wow! I mean, this, this is intense. If, if this was a movie, I mean, it'd be rated R for gore. Don't you think? I mean, this, this is not a happy day. And I want, to, I want to hasten to say, lest you read this and think it sounds like God is some kind of a, a blood-loving, sword-loving ogre who likes to smack people, you haven't read the rest of the Bible, if that's what you think. Okay? Because we saw it a couple weeks ago in the book of Ezekiel, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn to me and live So God does not describe all this and say, man, let me at him. I can hardly wait. Not at all. But rather he says, come, come to me. Repent. Believe my Savior, Jesus, who is to come as the time that Isaiah is being written. So God takes no pleasure in this. But this is a moment of justice, a moment of judgment indeed. Now, I notice, note here on your, your sermon notes, four different bullet points. The first I want to point out in verse 1, God says, pay attention here. Pay attention to me. He says, draw near nations to hear. Give attention. So we, 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 we see all the way through those strong words that are used, enraged, furious, destruction, sword, vengeance, strong words. We see the message given to us loud and clear. God is not neutral about evil and rebellion. He is not neutral. And that is wonderful news. You need to know it. I do too. God is not neutral on moral issues. He's not neutral to evil and rebellion. I say that's good news because, well, frankly, every one of us, wherever we stand in our thoughts about God, we look at a world and regularly see things that are broken and wrong, and somebody gets away with something, including religious people who get away with religion and hide behind it for evil. Yeah, it's true. And God sees. And if you've ever had a boot on your face, figuratively, hopefully not literally, if you ever suffered evil, ever saw a story and said, they got away with it. I want you to know that the story in the Bible that God is just is wonderful news. It's good news. That there's a day when he will take care of things. So when someone gets away with, rather than you, um, like the old TV show says, don't take the law into your own hands. Uh, I think that was people's court. You take him to, you, know, you don't have to do that either. I'm just saying God knows how to take care of things, okay? He knows, he sees. And one day he will settle all the books in a way that is totally just. Um, he is the standard of justice. There's no question about that. I'm not. Um, you might think it'd be a great day for you to be God for a day. You take care of some things. And I'm really glad that you're not God for a day. And you should be glad that I'm not. Um, None of us would be very good at it. Uh, God is God. He doesn't need our help, but there's a day when his justice will reign supreme. And I'm really glad for that. Um, it's, it's good news because it means that God is indeed God and he sits on the throne. Now, I mentioned my second, my second little bullet point here. This judgment so described in this chapter has a global reach. This differentiates it from other statements of judgment that we've read in Isaiah or that you read about at other points in the Bible. Here's what I mean. Sometimes God judges a nation or a city, and it's and sometimes even called the day of the Lord for that group. But this is describing a, a worldwide event that we would look at from 2 Peter 3. It's yet future. This hasn't happened yet. 
The Bible, you know, does talk about future judgment. So the, the terms that are used here in verses 1 and 2 in particular are very clear, clearly global. So nations here, oh peoples, let the earth here, the world, the nations. So there's clearly a global element here. And as I've said before, no one is exempt. No one is exempt from this, including people who might say, but I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Well, guess what? You don't have to, but there's a day you will. Really, I mean that with, with in, all, in all seriousness. The Bible is very clear on these things. <clears throat> no one is exempt from accountability before the living God. Um, so, so, man, don't, don't let a person think, don't let you think that if you just don't believe it, that makes it go away. Well, no, not so much. Um, this is describing something that we should take very seriously. I mentioned here similar language to these statements of judgment are found in Revelation 14 and 18 and 19. Those of you who are in community groups would do well to read these texts. You'll see a number of even phrases that correspond, reminding you that the same God who gave us Isaiah also gave us book of Revelation from the Apostle John. So they're speaking similar language about same events, time of judgment yet to come. Now I mentioned in verse 2, and then as we saw it as well in verse 5, the couple of phrases I think that stand out, one of those is devoted to destruction. You see it in verse 2. The Lord is enraged against all the nations, furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. Wow, devoted to... That sounds really serious. Well, guess what? That concept shows up elsewhere in the Bible. Something devoted to destruction. And I give you one example of that here in the story of Joshua, uh, chapter 6. This is the, the, the account where God's people are heading into the promised land. And they're going to make their first stop, first visit to Jericho. Remember the story from Sunday school? Um, I do as well. Because I had a Sunday school teacher when I was really little who was telling us about the battle of Jericho. I don't remember the story. And I don't remember her. What I remember is she made a, ba- a wall of blocks and each of us had a chance to push it over. And I remembered it was something about Jericho. Then we rebuilt it and the next person came and knocked over the wall of Jericho. It was really great. Um, but this story is, is, is from there, devoted to destruction. You remember, as God's people were going in to, to, to take over the land of Canaan, guess what? Those people there were not Jesus-loving, God-fearing people. Um, the people in Canaan of old Uh, Sometimes people stumble over this. God is bringing his people. It's like he's wiping out all these innocent people. Actually, I want to tell you, he didn't wipe out any innocent people. These are people who practiced child sacrifice and all manner of other things that would cause us all to blush if I gave you a little bit of history about the Canaanites. These were not just friendly little peace-loving people cooking breakfast over a camp stove. No, they were doing a lot of other really, really bad things that all of us would say, whoa, um, I feel polluted just to know it. Well, indeed, God is bringing his judgment. Well, when it came to Jericho, yeah, the wall was going to come down, but God said, take nothing in that city. All of it is under the ban. It's devoted to destruction. Okay? So that's what he said about that first city. It's all devoted to destruction. It's under the ban. And you remember what happened, right? If you've read the story, you know that everybody, well, except one, believed it. There's always one in every crowd. Now, right? I hope it's not you. But this is one guy who looked around and went, nobody sees me here. Wrong. And snitched some stuff. Like a gold bar. That's kind of fun. 
I mean, wow, think about that. A gold bar and some other cool stuff. And he ran home, dug a hole in the middle of his tent floor, threw it all in there and covered it up. I think his family knew, like, dad stashed in some stuff. Uh, it's, clearly, they had to know. Well, his name was Achan, who very soon was Achan as God judged him. Sorry, I know, it's terrible. Um, some people want to pronounce it right, but it doesn't work if you pronounce it differently than that. No, Achan was. No, he was. God saw. God saw. He took what was under the ban, and God had said, oh, don't do that, because this is a day of justice, and it's not for you to interfere. So justice prevailed over Achan as well. That was not a happy day for him. Well, that's an interesting phrase then. It's devoted to destruction. It's under the ban. What? The, the world. The, the rebellious world, those rebelling against God, under the ban, devoted to destruction. That is a phrase that ought to get your attention. I don't want to be there on that day on the receiving end. See? Now, also, I mentioned in, in verse 11, just so that you piece these things together as you read and study the Bible, there are a couple of phrases here as well. This is a section we didn't read out loud. It's describing the land after judgment. Empty. Animals are living here. But it mentions in verse 11 that God will stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Now, stretching the line, that's like measuring something. We would use a, a measuring tape, perhaps, or some kind of laser device if you got one of those cool high-grade things. Um, but he's measuring, and his measurement is correct every time. And it mentions a, a plumb line. And again, unless you know how to build things, maybe you haven't used one of those before, but it's, a, it's like if you have a string and you tie something heavy at the bottom and you can, see, you can see what's straight. You can go a little to the left, a little to the left, but the plumb line tells you. I've never been able to work those things horizontally. It only works on vertical. Um, yes, I know. Sorry, sorry. It's what it is. Uh, a plumb line, though, it doesn't lie, though, does it? The plumb line is not going to be an inch off per six feet. How come? Gravity. See, you don't even have to believe in it. Like I said earlier, you don't have to believe in it at all, but it will work every single time. God is measuring. That's what this verse is about. God is measuring every single person and he's accurate every single time. So he's measuring. Well, at the same time, watch this. He stretches the line of confusion, the plumb line of emptiness. Those two terms, those two terms, confusion and emptiness show up in Genesis 1 verse 2. Did you know that? They show up in Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void before God began his creative process. Formless and void. Confusion, emptiness. If you like your Hebrew phrases, they kind of rhyme. So there's a play on it in the text written in Hebrew. There's a play on it. Tohu vabohu. It kind of goes, wow, that's kind of fun. Jack and Jill. Well, tohu vabohu. It's not that fun. Empty, confusion, um, formless, void. And this is, what, this is what God is going to bring by his judgment. So chapter 34, the city of man will surely fall, and it isn't just a casual falling, like falling into disuse. No, it is an act of God's judgment. And it's a tough day if you live there, because it'll be your last. Well, that's a sobering, sobering text, but it flows right into chapter 35 as we make the shift as well. So judgment, and then mercy, the city of God, that will last forever. So chapter 35 is just 10 verses long. So I'm going to read all 10 of those. 
And uh, you, should, you should look on if you have a, a chance to do so. But hear God's word then, speaking about a blessed future. Think ahead to kingdom time, which I'll define in a moment. Chapter 35 then, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. By the way, that isn't a person here. Those are locations, okay? Beautiful places, beautiful places. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the the feeble knees. Say to those, please get this, say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Okay, I thought we were done with with the business of vengeance and recompense. Well, yes, but it's speaking about the contrast between the God who judges is the same mighty God who will save. That's the contrast that's presented in that verse. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the, the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. That's good news. If you're not, if you're not good at finding things, you can't get lost here. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. No danger. No danger at all. But the redeemed, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the, re- the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And you want to sing that right now, don't you? Some of you know that song. Absolutely, yeah. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. Yes, this is talking about a wonderful day, a day of celebration. More on that in a minute. The city of God then will last forever. This text, this chapter, starting in verses 1 and 2 and over to verse 7 and so on, it describes a deliverance from the bondage of the curse. What do I mean by that, the curse? The idea is this. The beginning of the Bible, uh, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, it describes God's perfect world, okay? Nothing wrong. Then you get to chapter 3, Adam and Eve's sin, and the world, their lives, and all of creation is plunged into, well, under the, under the curse, into bondage, under, under slavery to corruption, which, by the way, is what you see going on today. If you, wherever you go, if you see people looking around saying, this is just crazy. I mean, this place is so messed up. Broken, got crazy stuff. I, yes, you can say to them, you're right. That's exactly what the Bible says. You just agreed with what the Bible says. They were in bondage to, to corruption, to the curse. And you know what? All the, listen, I hate to tell you this. All the money in the world, all the education, everybody trying harder won't fix it. Not going to fix it that way. I'm not saying don't feed people and care for people and, and make efforts to clean it up. I don't mean that. I'm just saying if you, if you make efforts to fix it and establish global justice, you will never do it. You'll never get there without the king of kings ruling and reigning here because the earth is under the curse. Man, it's messed up. Well, in fact, um, God says in Genesis 3, uh, he places a curse on Adam and Eve, and, and th- but also he says on, on, on nature, creation. 
uh, he says, Adam, you're going to get thorns and thistles now as you plow the ground. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to make a living. It's going to get hard now. It's called the curse. And in Romans 8, Paul talks about that glorious day when that's going to be, there's going to be deliverance from that. If you read Romans 8, you see three groans. One of them's nature, one of them's us. Uh, but but in, in this particular case, as I gave it to you there, Romans 8, creation is groaning. It's, it's feeling the bondage of, of all of this. You're right. You're right. And it's longing for that day when creation itself is set free from its bondage to, to corruption. Indeed, you read about that. And I mentioned joy to the world. I know some of you have already read ahead. You're trying to think of verse 3. Kind of humming Christmas songs. How's that go? Verse 3, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his glories known far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. What in the world do you think Isaac Watts was writing about? He read the Bible. Isn't that amazing? He read the Bible and he wrote a song. He didn't just make it up. It wasn't just a poem. No, Isaac Watts had read the Bible. He said, man, there's going to be a day God's going to deliver the whole universe, the world from this curse. I'm going to sing about it. So when you sing Joy to the World at Christmas time, you should be thinking of this. It's what what Isaac Watts had in mind. He was teaching us. It's why there's joy to the world. Yes, indeed, the Lord has come, Messiah, a Savior. And there's coming a day. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That's Romans 8. That's amazing to think about. Now, similarly, verses 5 and 6 describe a a reversal of the curse. And I want you to see this. Man, this is good news. So verse 5, it says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness. Who can do those things? How, how can that happen? Well, I'd like you, please, if you've got a Bible and you want to look at this, or just listen and I'll read it to you. In the book of, of, of Luke, Gospel of Luke, that text kind of shows up, okay? So in, in Luke chapter 7, there's this interaction between the followers of John the Baptist and the followers of Jesus. So I'm in Luke 7, verse 18, John the Baptist, okay? So, so he, he, he hears a message about from his guys saying, there's this guy down the road who's healing the sick and raising the dead, you don't suppose, do you? Is this the guy we're waiting for? So they hear rumors about this. So, verse 19, they, John the Baptist sends two of his guys to go to Jesus and say, are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? How's that? That's great. So they go to Jesus, and they say, John sent us to you. Now, it says in verse 21, Jesus was busy working that day. In that day, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. That's kind of cool. And Jesus answered them, these two who came to ask. He said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Now watch this, right out of Isaiah 35. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus says, hey, go see if John the Baptist has read the Bible. That's what he says. It's right out of Isaiah 35. It's pointing to me. So see if he's read Isaiah 35. You better believe he did. He went, wow. Jesus was identifying himself as a fulfillment of Isaiah 35. You just got to see these connections. They're all over the Bible. Where, where there's a reference in the New Testament, it's like, well, if you knew Isaiah, you'd know exactly what he was talking about. That's what he's talking about. And Jesus was using this to point to who he was. It was like a, it was like a business card. 
Some people give a business card and has their email address and things like that. Jesus just healed people. How about that? You want to know who I am? He'd just give them a card. He said, okay, watch this. And he'd raise the dead. That's, that's amazing. So that was, his, that was his business card, his calling card. Amazing miracles. And I mention here several things I think that are important. Jesus was identifying himself as a messianic deliverer, pointing toward a future kingdom when he rules and reigns from the throne of David. Note to self, that isn't now. That isn't happening now. This isn't the, this isn't the kingdom, okay? If you look around and go, man, it's still messed up. I know. I know that. We're still living in this period of time when it's still that way. But when Jesus was here walking on planet Earth, it was, he was giving us a glimpse of another day, another kingdom that's going to come. I, if you understand and you study some of these things, you'll know that I still believe there's a rapture of the church. The, those who know Jesus will be taken away. And then a bad time called the time of tribulation. And then there's this kingdom time. I still believe that's kind of the order of events. And we can debate it, discuss it. Others slice and dice it differently. I got it. But I think it's talking about that kingdom time. Okay? That's, that's what I understand all this to be. And this isn't it. So I think those signs and wonders were done by Jesus to, to say, this is who I am. You can believe me. Can you do this? I don't think so. And we're looking ahead to another great day when that's the way it's going to be. See? I think that was kind of the point. Well, um, it says a bit about signs and wonders. I, I don't think that that's, I think that's why everybody isn't doing them now. We're not in the kingdom. In theology, if you read or study theology much, you will hear this phrase, already and not yet. Okay? Already and not yet. Meaning, some elements of this we have already. Oh goodness, Jesus came in breaking of the kingdom of God. The king was here. So there's some things already here. Forgiveness presence of God in our lives, but there are other things not yet, like the full display of all of that, okay? Kingdom time, not yet. Already, not yet. It's all over books of theology, good ones, all right? Just like to tell you about that. I'm going back to Isaiah 35 for just a couple more things as we kind of head toward a conclusion. City of God will last forever. Well, I mentioned verse 2, the beauty of that last phrase, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. It sounds a lot like Revelation 21 and 22, okay? He will be among them, wipe away every tear from their eyes. They'll see the majesty of God. People talk about heaven, and we try to imagine, based on what the Bible says about the glory of heaven, um, streets of gold. Wow, streets of gold. But I think we sometimes get the idea of streets of gold kind of messed up. Like we're walking on gold. What does that say about gold? It's like worthless. Meaning, meaning here, if you went out and chipped up some concrete and went, look, I've got some. I got some. No, really. Big chunk. People would think you lost it. And indeed, uh, it's not valuable. We'll put it down. I mean, it's, it's just concrete or blacktop or whatever. Well, similarly, in heaven, we're not going to be walking around going, look at, the, look at the ground. The ground is glorious. Oh, no, no. The glory of God will be far greater than the glory of the, of the streets. Uh, you're gonna, you won't look down and go, man, honey, look at the... No, you'll be saying, look up. Look at this glory. That's verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Wow. In contrast to all the other glories here on earth, oh, they're great, but they'll fade in view of that greater, greater glory, the greater glory of God. I mentioned already in verse 4, the same God who is mighty in judgment is mighty in salvation. Indeed, that's true. Now, 
in your thinking about these things in community group notes and uh, under one of the responding points as well, I think it's really significant that we, we be aware of God's judgment and of our own sinfulness. Can I, can I get you to think with me about this for just a moment? Um, it's good that we think about judgment for sin. And it's good that we be aware, every one of us, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. It's good. Um, several theologians down through the years have pointed to this as a value for every person who knows Jesus to say, never lose sight, never lose sight of what God saved you from. Okay? And it doesn't mean you're worse. Than, it's not about measuring your sin. Sometimes we look out, though. Here's the idea. Sometimes we look at other people and go, man, they're bad people. And wow, it took a lot of God's mercy to save them. But then there's me. I mean, come on. I, you know, I mean, I needed a little nudge. Just, just you know, he took a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm already halfway cleaned up. Oh, man. No, you underestimate yourself, my friend. No, it takes every bit as much of the grace of God to save anybody you'd point to. And me, you see, all have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, all taught a similar truth um, under the heading of double knowledge. That's how theologians have, have titled this, okay? Um, but all of them taught a similar schematic. The idea is this double knowledge, that for you to grow in your Christian faith, there are two directions you need to grow consistently. One, I'm going to point down, in, in, in a better understanding of your own depravity, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. See, a, a, an understanding of, of the depth of your own sinfulness. And at the same time, an understanding of the mercy and beauty and wonder of God. So you need to grow in both of those areas. Because I'll tell you what happens if you don't. And this is what those great theologians of yesteryear would tell you. If you grow in your knowledge of God and you start forgetting about your own need of a Savior, you're going to become a very proud person. You're going to be one of those snotty religious people who looks around and looks at all these other people and go, boy, you're bad. <laughs> Here I am, world. Uh, no, friend, no. It leads to pride. And if you're a person who only thinks about their own depravity and doesn't grow in their understanding of God, you're going to just be depressed all the time. I'm just so awful. And you won't see the beauty of what it means to be called a child of God and to be forgiven by him. So you need to grow in both of those. And if I were to really flesh out that illustration, Jerry Bridges uh, has put this into uh, uh, illustration-type form. You, you, you see at the beginning, you understand a little bit, and the cross of Jesus is about this big. You understand the gospel about this much. And before long, as you grow and you see the, the beauty of Christ more and your own sinfulness, Christ it seems to you as even greater. C.S. Lewis captured the same thing in the Chronicles of Narnia. This, I mean, this is all over Christianity. So... Look for this stuff, all right? C.S. Lewis, in Chronicles of Narnia, he was talking about Aslan. I think it's, man, I want to say it's Lucy talking to the, to the great line, if you're not a Chronicles of Narnia person. I'm so sorry. I'll be back in a minute. So I think it's Lucy who sees Aslan, the great lion, and says, my, how you're grown. You've grown. You look bigger. See? And the lion, Aslan, the Christ figure, says back, it's not because I'm bigger. It's because you see me as bigger. He's capturing the same thing. Double knowledge. He'd read Luther, Calvin, Augustine. See, you, you, all of us, for our spiritual health, for humility, and the knowledge of God, need to grow in both of those areas. And these kinds of texts help us do that. 
You see, you see the judgment of God upon, upon those who reject him. And, oh, Lord, apart from your mercy, I would be among them. See, that's, that's Bible truth. No one comes to Christ because they're any smarter than anybody else. Sometimes people say those religious people think they're better. Oh, believe me, those aren't Bible-loving people. If they, run, if they know the gospel, they don't think they're any better than anybody else. They might have forgotten part of this double knowledge thing. That might be their problem. But they're very well aware, oh my goodness sakes, uh, I, the mercy of Christ. John, um, man, John Newton, two things I know. Two things I know. I am a great sinner and I have a great savior. Double knowledge. John Newton said it. Wow. I need it. I need it. I mentioned the highway. Shows up several times. I have a typo here. If you were looking already in your sermon notes and saying, I don't see it. In, in nine, chapter 9, verse 23, it's not there. It's 1923. Not the year. Chapter 19, verse 23. Okay? That's, that's the mistake. The one is missing. I want to close with a look with you at verses 9 and 10. I mentioned here the nation of Israel had three pilgrim feasts when God's people went up to Jerusalem. People went up elevation. Uh, Jerusalem was higher, so they went up to Jerusalem. And there were three. And as they went, they sang. And they went to worship. Three of these uh, a year, they would go and worship, um, worship there in Jerusalem. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 35 describe a similar scenario. Okay? But the Bible describes it in even greater measure in the book of Revelation, the, re- the ransomed of the Lord, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. Come to Zion with singing. I think we will. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They'll obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I think those pilgrim feasts of old were like a warm-up. I think they were a dry run. They did it year by year. But I think it was Practice. For an even greater day described in the book of Revelation, when instead of God's people just going, you know, in that time, just a smaller crowd, really, comparatively, the, in the book of Revelation, there's a picture of men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation standing before the throne. Can you imagine that day? People talk about million man marches or million woman marches on the mall in Washington, D.C. for some cause. You think that's great? Let me tell you about a multitude even greater than that. Multiplied thousands upon thousands in the presence of God, men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, the beauty of the nations, the colors of the nations coming in. Revelation 22. The nations will bring their glory, the glory that's good and right in every culture around the world into the presence of God. You, know, you can do a million person march if you like, but I want to go to that one. See, indeed, then... The redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. I want to be there for that. And, you know, you can think about this. It's in your community group notes, I think. Everlasting joy. Is that talking about time? Is that a temporal thing? I mean, is it just talking about how long it lasts? Or a different quality? I have an opinion on that. I think it's both. I think it's a greater joy that lasts forever. You can think about that. Everlasting joy. I think that'll be a great day. So what I've wanted to say, as you see in summary, this first part of Isaiah, we have seen God as glorious and three times holy, chapter 6. We've been warned repeatedly 
against rebellion against him, even the rebellion of refusing to believe it. Did you know that? That even that, even refusing to believe it is rebellion against him. Romans 1 will tell you that. No one can stand before God on that day and say, you just didn't, con- you just didn't convince me. Romans 1 is very, very clear. God says, oh no, I gave you plenty of evidence in creation itself of my eternal power. Plenty. So you cannot say, I just didn't see it. If that's the case, willfully blind, the Bible describes. Willfully blind. You chose it. You chose to be blind to the evidences of God. No, that's that's an amazing thing. Rebellion against him indeed one day will be fully punished. But the beauty of mercy for those who trust themselves to God's mercy, and as the Bible tells the story, that leads us straight to Jesus. Straight to Jesus, God's Savior, Messiah. No other way to be saved. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ, Christ alone. I hope that every one of you, and those who listen later, I hope all of us know Christ is our Savior because I'm telling you, it's going to be either Isaiah 34 or Isaiah 35. Two cities. Isaiah 34 is the city of man, and it will fall. And if you're in Isaiah 34, you will fall with it. And if you're Isaiah 35, that's the city of God. That is the place to be forever. You're there having trusted Christ as your Savior. That's the way it is. Okay? God tells us that in the Bible. Well, a lot more we could say. I want to pray for us that God will help us to hear and believe. So would you stand with me, please, as we do that? Our Father... This is indeed uh, your work. My words alone could never convince anyone of anything. But our Father, you are the great one who can draw people to yourself in Christ. And I pray that you do that. That you would, you would be the one who draws men and women and young people to genuine faith in Christ. Do that work of grace. Enable us to believe. Break down the barriers and turn our wills to you. I thank you for how clear the word of God is, this text, judgment and mercy. Thank you that you are not a God who delights in the death of the wicked, but you say continually, turn, come to me, come to me. Father, whatever our needs that we think of as we walked in here today, family or financial or other things very personal and private, whatever those needs are. Our Father, would you, would you help us with those this week? Give us strength, enablement, help us. Help us most of all to turn to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.